second hole of the day, I pull out driver on my bag of map. And I asked my grandfather who was there to go to his car and get me a his driver. Because, you know, if it doesn't break on purpose, then you can get a new one. I got his, and the very next hole, 180 yards to the right, OB, like a cow pasture, all the way down the left, and this thing goes 30 yards beside some cows. And as soon as I hit it, I got up my three-wood, handed my grandfather his uh, driver back and said, don't let me touch this thing again for the rest of the day. Today we are joined by Dawson Armstrong. Dawson is a professional golfer who plays on the Corn Ferry Tour. Dawson played college golf at Lipscomb, where he set the school record for wins and won the 2015 Western Am. When Dawson finished up college, he played on PGA Tour Canada for a little bit, where he had one win before graduating to the Corn Ferry Tour, where he has finished inside the top 60 the last two years. Down in Florida now, you play on the Corn Ferry, but the kind of where we start with every guest is, how did you get into golf in the first place? So my uh, my dad played college golf and professional golf for eight years or nine years. He actually went to Corn Ferry Q School nine times. And while he was in the middle of his um, mini tour life, he had my older brother, myself, and my younger brother. We have a younger sister, but that was after he uh, finished playing. And, um, you know, throughout when we were, I don't know, two, three, about four, five, six, however old, he kind of just, I don't know, things like handed us a little club, you know, made sure we always saw a golf ball of some kind. Um, it kind of kind of branched from that, but my grandfather also played, my uncle also played. So we kind of, we almost kind of made it more of a, more of like a family affair whenever we'd go out and play golf as a kid or, you know, anytime we were like at the house, we'd just grab golf clubs and just like hit a tree or stuff like that. That was kind of that was kind of the soft introduction to me playing golf as a kid. Um, but as I got older, you know, you you don't know what you want to do until you're kind of forced to do it. Um, in high school, I tried to play basketball as well. Turns out, I kind of dunk, and uh, the my sophomore year, junior year, one of those two, I, uh, I quit basketball, tried to come back senior year, decided not to play again. And then around senior year was when I really started like ramping up and winning some tournaments. It was really around that point or basically once I realized that basketball wasn't my sport, that that golf was going to be the avenue for me to go down, especially when it comes to like all the money that my parents had put into us going to like tournaments, traveling, making sure that my dad could still work while my mom's at home taking care of four kids. Um, you know, do what you can to go to college for free, right? And uh, once once I realized that that was the path for me to do that, kind of ran with it. So going back to your junior golf days, when did you start playing in um, more serious tournaments? Did you play in national tournaments or did you kind of just stick around Nashville? So I grew up actually down in South Georgia. Um, Valdosta, Georgia. It was about actually two, a little bit less than two hours from here in Jacksonville. And we, uh, we grew up down there, lived there for, until I was about 16 years old, 15, 16, something like that. And didn't really, to be honest, we didn't have, we didn't have the money to play really anywhere. I think the furthest tournament I ever played besides when we went to like go see family as like the primary means of doing something. I don't think we ever traveled outside like three hours for a tournament driving, maybe four. Um, it was either statewide. It was either something in Georgia or, you know, something like the future masters, a two hour drive from Valdosta over in Dothan. Um, nothing, nothing really nationally by any means. Um, the only time we ever traveled anywhere was to go up to Nashville where my mom's family is, where we try the U S junior qualifier, a 36 whole day hot as can be um obviously we hated it but we tried it we none of us would ever make it because we stunk and 
we just go home like four or five days later because we were just hanging out with family. That's for the most part. No, it was it was regional golf, you know, citywide. Nothing, nothing with any real resources to like get your name on the map or anything like that. So, I mean, you say you stunk, but it looks like on your senior yeah. year you got second second in the state state tournament. Yeah, and um, you're you were recruited by some SEC schools. Yeah. So at what point did you begin to have the level of success that you were recruited by those schools and what made you choose um, Lipscomb ultimately? So a little, a few things. One, I had committed to, I'll kind of make it a timeline. So my junior year, my brother was going into his senior year and he had just committed to Lipscomb. I kind of knew that I wanted to follow in his footsteps because he was, he was way better than me. My older brother actually won state in Georgia and in Tennessee in the same year in 2011. So he won it in the spring of 2011 in Georgia. We moved to Tennessee. He won state there in the fall of 2011. So he was kind of known as, you know, the, the athlete, the golfer, you know, he kind of, he also had like a thousand points in high school in basketball. He was starting goalie for our high school team in Tennessee. He was just, he was a big athletic dude. I was kind of the guy that just was kind of there, right? The younger brother. He, um, he committed to Lipscomb. I decided to go where he wanted to go. And about a week after he had committed, I committed as well. And kind of this huge weight was lifted off my shoulders when it comes to like, oh, this coach is watching me. I wonder what these guys are going to think about my game. You know, things that high schoolers think of. And the uh, after I committed to that, that next summer, I just started winning, like, a lot. It was, I mean, I think I won three, four times during that summer. And probably the most notable one was the an AJGA tournament in Nashville where a lot of, you know, how HHEs are, you get guys that, you know, parents have a little bit of money, they're able to fly them to places, and they're able to play in these tournaments. So it was like, that was the legit first national event I've played in, and I won it, and so that kind of boosted my confidence, I had already committed, and at that point, now you have schools coming up to you being like, hey dude, you know, wink, wink, if you decide to decommit from Lipscomb, this no-name school that really none of us care about, if you decide to decommit from there, give us a call. We'll find a spot for you. You know, just the, yeah. But, you know, a little under the table action. But we, I decided, you know what, I made the commitment to my coach, made the commitment to school. I'm going to stick with my gut and go to Lipscomb. My senior year, you brought up uh, coming a second at state. That was kind of when the confidence was going way up, right? And, my first hole of the day, the second round, well, there's two rounds, right? Two rounds in the high school state. Second round, second hole of the day, I pull out driver on my bag and snapped. And I play number two, this par five, hit three wood off the tee, you know, make par, whatever, even or one over through two, whatever. I go to the next hole and I ask my grandfather, who was there, to go to his car and get me a his driver. Because, you know, if it doesn't break on purpose, then you can get a new one. I got his, and the very next hole, 180 yards to the right, OB, like a cow pasture, all the way down the left, and this thing goes 30 yards beside some cows. And as soon as I hit it, I got up my three-wood, handed my grandfather his uh, driver back and said, don't let me touch this thing again for the rest of the day. So I was like three over through the four holes. And I proceeded to shoot 69, 68, something like that the second, the second day. And I lost in a playoff to a kid who was at a rival school who ended up going to, uh, I want to say he went to the Air Force Academy. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of the story about me coming at second at state. And, yeah, after that, I just realized that Lipscomb was where I wanted to be. Like some players can't be externally focused. Sounds like you can. How do you how do you get out on the golf course, know the things that you want to be, you know the end result you want, but still stay in the present and not let your confidence or l- not let everything swing on one shot? Yeah. So 
as you were asking that, I kind of, I think you got to have a, I think you got to have a group of guys or a team around you, right? That, that really, that they got to compliment you, right? They, like my coaches, right? My, my head coach, Will Brewer, he was very, very, um, very detail oriented. He was very much like, hey, you got to make sure you do this. You got to have this in your bag. You know, here's how we're going to attack this golf course. Stay in the moment. Just, you know, the little things that a college athlete doesn't think about enough. And then I also had our assistant coach who, after my, after the fall of my freshman year, became my swing coach. And he helped me while I'm thinking of all the big things, right? Like, how do I win? How do I get player of the month or player of the week? How do I get to nationals? How does this team get to regional stuff like that? He kept it to, okay, you've got to do these drills perfectly. You've got, you've got 30 minutes. You've got an hour. You've got to do this. And it was very frustrating, right? Because I just think of, I think of things like, it's okay if I don't do something well, because when I get in the moment, I'll be able to do it. And my coaches were on the other side going, look, if you don't do this well now, you might not be able to have the confidence to do it later. And my, my ambition of, of macro sense, how do I become the best player I can combined with their, their look on the micro side of here's how you become as, get, as good as you possibly can be today. It was frustrating, but it was the perfect, it really was the perfect mixture for me to kind of keep on rising throughout the years instead of getting complacent after year one or year two, you know? That's cool. And you mentioned that you took your assistant coach on as your swing coach. And I know yeah. you've also uh, read in a Q&A with you that you also at least done some video work with a few different guys all in the same genre. So kind of like yeah. to jump over to like swing work. One, what when you first took, took him on as a swing coach, what did you learn and what did what changed in your swing? And then second, when you took on, when you had like Shaheen and Jeff Smith oh, yeah. and them at least take a take a second look, which I think is a good healthy thing for players to do is yeah. get a second set of eyes. When you had them take a look, what did they see and what did you adjust from on that? Yeah, so a little a little a little journey through that process so far. When I was when I was in high school, right, I had one coach I saw maybe once a year. He was my dad's teammate in college. He was a lead better guy down in Florida. And he's still a great friend of mine. I saw him a few times in the last two years as well, but you know, it was more so just to see if he saw anything crazy. But once I got to college and my coach, Dan Pelicani, started looking at my swing, he was a Mike Bender guy. Mike Bender, Zach Johnson, Jonathan Bird, those guys. And he saw a lot of he saw a lot of structural issues, right? Like me as a high schooler, I was playing a lot more on feel and touch and creativity, which I still do now. But he helped me kind of go from one extreme, kind of meet more in the middle. And he took it to things like, hey, look, you've got to stop moving back on it with your head on the way back. Get your hips shifting better. You know, things that, things that golfers know the term, terminology of. But I didn't ever know these things, right? Because all I saw was, oh, the ball's drawing. Okay, just hit more of a face. And you don't think, it, you don't think about it. So he helped me a lot through my college years, and that was what I needed completely. He was he was great. He and I are great friends to this day, and I still talk to him a lot about the golf swing. I I went and saw guys like Jeff Smith, and I didn't see Jeff. I sent him a few videos. I saw Shaheen sent him a few videos as well. Um, my coach Scott Holden down in Florida again, like I said, um, and I kind of found that while I was working on the right things with Ben Pelicani, my game, my game wasn't suited well enough for the level of play that I was at at the time down in Corn Ferry. And I figured, okay, I've got to find something different, right? I just have to. And all these guys were telling me about the same thing, right? Hey, getting it too tucked inside, kind of trying to fall back on it. It's about the same things that Pelicani was telling me, but it was a different way to put it. Whether it's good or bad, it's just different. And I took that at heart and I started playing pretty well, right? So 
So having a little bit of change is a little, it's a little uncomfortable for sure. When it comes, especially when it comes to a coach you've had for years, it, it's sometimes needed to be done. Like for example, my freshman year of college, when I started playing really well, my high school coach came out to Nashville and, you know, he was driving through whatever he came out and he saw us play. And I remember, I remember specifically my high school or my high school teacher telling me, because at this time I had seen Pelicani now, he told me, you've got to hit a fade in order to win. You have to. That's just how you have, like, in order to stop the ball, you've got to hit a fade. I'm like, okay, I, I can't, but okay, sure. And I win like three times in the next year. And it's uncomfortable because he definitely wants to have his, people want to have their agendas pushed a little bit, all with the best of intentions, right? But a little bit of change is not the worst thing in the world. And I went down that path of a little bit of change and it's helped me in supplemental fashion for sure. But it's also helped me understand more about my game. And the more I go down this path of, of learning from other guys, I'm learning more about what my tendencies are and how I can do that myself. So there's that little spiel. So you said your game wasn't suited for the corn fairy level. What were some of the specific things that it was, it was lacking? Mm. Um, turns out in order to play good, in order to be good at golf, you have to hit fairways. Turns out, right. I don't, I, I didn't know that apparently. And, uh, my first two years on Corn Ferry, I was second to last in both greens hit and fairways hit for the whole two years. Of all the guys that kept their card, I was second to last in both. And I looked at that and went, this is just, this is just ridiculous. Like, how can you expect to perform well if you're putting for par all the time? You can't, you can't, you can't make yourself make eight footers for par every single day because sooner or later you're going to have a bad putting day, which happens a lot more than you think. You're going to miss a few 15 footers for birdie. And all of a sudden you're going to have two birdies and four bogeys and you're going to be in 120th after thinking you hit it pretty, pretty good. Right. Like, and so ball striking is really important on corn fairy. I mean, you've got to hit greens. It's, it's the most important stat. And that's the thing that I've been the worst at in my career so far. And after kind of having the data to realize that, I realized very quickly that I needed to change something. And going down that route has been a painful experience, but it's been very, very useful when it comes to me being competitive and starting to play well and get into tournaments. When it comes to those, going back a little earlier, when it comes to those swing changes, that you made. I like what you said as far as like having a second set of eyes and just a little change is good. And that's something that has happened. I think both Cooper and I in our golf lives, and we've seen it play out with people. Uh, and what I thought was mo the most interesting about what you said is that uh, going back earlier, you'd said, you know, if I, if I was hitting a draw uh, and it was a little too strong, I'd say, okay, well, I need to hit a fade. And that seems commonsensical, but at least for Cooper and I as kids, I can tell you, Fighting fire with fire like that was not common sense. Common sense. No, and that's something that, like, for me, growing up, I I remember kid like when I lived in Georgia when I was 10, 12, 15 years old. I remember kids going to these teachers all the time, being like, well, "My swings like this. I got to focus on these drills and stuff like that." I'm like, "You're you're 15 years old. You're 12 years old. The last thing you need to do is worry about what your body's doing now." Like your body is going to be, you're probably going to weigh 50 pounds more in five years. You're probably going to be four inches taller and you're going to hit clubs that you never even thought about hitting in five years from now. Why in the world are you so focused on making sure that you shallow out the club on the way down? Like there's a few things you got to look at, get the fundamentals, right? Get your setup good, all that stuff. But just swing and figure out how to make birdie and make, figure out how to get up and down when you're off the green. Like, that's the stuff that like, I think kids don't understand. There's so much more to golf than just how does my swing look on a recruiting video for a coach? That was something that uh, I never once took a recruiting video. I never once, I never once like anything on YouTube or whatever it was. All I did was just try to go out and 
shoot as low score as I possibly could. You can tell that you weren't overcoached at all because uh, yeah, clearly having having that reaction <laughs> having that reaction is great. Cooper, like we talked with, we've talked with people who were overcoached or felt overcoached, and when they finished up a bad round of golf, it, the or even during the rounds of golf, the question they would ask themselves isn't like, "Well, I'm drawing it too much. I need to like figure out a way to work it back." It's like, "Oh, actually, I'm drawing it too much because my left wrist is in too much has too much flexion, and so uh, I need to work on getting the right wrist angles." So I love. I'm not. That. I'm not. I'm not deep enough on the way back. I gotta stop. Mm-hmm. Like. I'm I'm reverse pivoting or I'm not holding on to the shaft lean as much. Like get that out of your head. You've got two more hours to play golf. Go play. Like exactly. forget about it. Forget about it for a minute. It's interesting that you talk about that. Um, because I was gonna say, I mean, if you finish that low in the ball striking categories and left your uh and kept your card, you must have a pretty elite uh short game and scoring game, no? Uh my putting's really good. Um the I've I've never had a single worry about putting, ever. I've had a few days where it's been pretty bad, like obviously where you have like five footers where you're like, I might not touch the hole. But for the most part, I just know it's just, you know, either... I, I never attribute it to a bad stroke. I mean, sometimes I do hit a bad stroke, but it's never like an inherently bad putting stroke, right? I, um, I've just always had a good good putting game and i obviously i now know the things to work on right i have about the same two things that i work on every week but other than that i just get out of there what what do you attribute to having such a good um putting game um having to put for par literally all the time uh <laughs> no i i um my i don't know as a kid my older brother was way longer than me right he was he, to put it in perspective my going into eighth grade, I was like four foot ten or eleven, something like that. And my older brother was five eleven, a year older than me. He was about a foot taller, and he would hit it about sixty yards further, maybe fifty yards further than me. We're playing the same tees, and I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, I, how in the world am I going to keep up?" I just had to make every putt, right? Like there was there was no way around it. Either chip it really good or putt it really good. And um, my philosophy as a kid was. If you can chip well, you can shoot 68 on any golf course. doesn't matter because you'll get up and down from almost anywhere. And now I think if you can putt well, you can do that almost anywhere. Um, but no, it's just kind of, you know how like you hear Cam Smith be like, oh, you know, it's just, just kind of there. I don't really practice it ever. I just am really good at putting. I'm not as good as Cam Smith, I don't think. But I think I'm, I think I'm good enough to where I know what I'm working on. And... My putting game, it's never going to leave me. You know what I mean? That ties into something I think you said earlier, and it doesn't surprise me that your putting is that good with how much you kind of focus on being an athlete and not getting bogged down in, especially with putting. A lot of people think putting mechanics, this putting mechanics, that. And putting, don't get me wrong, putting mechanics can be important to a degree, no? Nah, no, no, no. Well, I mean, yes, it is, yeah. right? My, uh, the Pelicani guy that I was telling you about, my coach, he, um, I always told him, I'm like, dude, look, ball striking is the hardest part of the game. It is. He's like, well, I could disagree. I think putting might be the hardest part of the game. I'm like, not a chance. It's the simplest, it's the easiest to do. You literally keep your head here. You don't take any ground. You just hit a ball. Like, the simplest thing in the world. All you got to do is hit it straight, and it curves either way. Like, just having that mindset probably is so, most of the reason that you're so good at putting. Yeah, it's, I mean, that actually might be true, but... uh but for now, it might just be me sounding like, "Hey, it's that easy. Just do it." Right? You're dead on. You're but, dead on, though. Like, if you look back at like old videos of guys playing back in the day, uh, there was a like they didn't have like perfect strokes per se. Like they're flicking, no. flicking their wrists, like things things that are looked on as bad. But at the end of the day, putting more so than anything, uh, you know, with at impact with ball striking, you got to get the club face square mm-hmm. enough, et cetera. With putting, like. It's easier, and it's not as far of a distance to do it on. Well, well, and even if you look at some of the best putters ever, like in recent mm-hmm. history, right? You look at guys like Steve Stricker, Tiger Woods, Zach Johnson. Um, I'm not even going back to, you know, in the 70s and 80s, but, like, you look at those three guys. They, Zach Johnson has very much straighter arms. Steve Stricker held his hands way up to where the toe was on the ground, and Tiger had his heel on the ground. Like, they all did it different ways, but they did it their way and they did it pretty thinking perfectly right 
And Zach Johnson, five foot eight. He has two majors. Like, not because he hits 350. Like, he putts pretty good. And, you know, just the idea that some some kids and some college players think, I've got to get my stroke better. I've got to get it better. I've got I've got to get it like this person or, you know, he rolls it good. How do I do it like that? No, find out what works perfect for you. Go down that path and own it. That you, You've got to own it to the point of if someone tries to tell you that you, what you're doing is wrong, you basically give them the middle finger and tell them to get away from you, right? That's just, that's just what you got to do. But, yeah, there's my little putting spiel. <laughs> I love it. So getting out, uh, playing on the Corn Ferry, you know, it's easy at every level, I think. You get a lot of people in your ears. Uh, how have you been able to, you know, people people want to comment, not on social media per se, but just like friends, family, like coaches, et cetera. Yeah. And you got to take feedback well as far as like absorbing it and figuring out if it's true or not. How have you how have you done that, you know, playing uh, on Corn Ferry and others, not like not taking all that information in and getting information overload? You're talking about um, you talking about more so when it comes to like people giving little like passive comments and stuff like that. I mean, there's always guys on the range giving tidbits, equipment reps, coaches, etc. Mm-hmm. Caddies. Good, good point. Um, I think I think one thing you've got to kind of establish is you've got to establish that you know what you're doing, right? And if you if you don't establish that, you're willing that you're just subconsciously willing to let anyone give their input, right? Now, now you can have people, like there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? You can hear what people have to say all the time. You don't ever have to listen to it. I've had a few guys come up to me and be like, dude, you look like you're too far away from the ball. Or, you know, just feel like you grip down on a little bit more, stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, dude, thanks. Get out of here. And, you know, I just go right back to what I'm doing. Maybe I need to listen to him a little bit more if I'm second to last in all my ball striking. But, you know, well, uh, that's neither here nor there. But, you know, when it comes to things like that, if you look at some of the best players in the world, they're all pretty stinking stubborn, right? They know what they're doing. They know who they need to listen to. They, they're unwavering in their inner circle. And they're successful no matter who tells them what. You know, there's no, they don't care about the chirping. They don't care about what all the extra, all the extra media brings, stuff like that. They just, they keep their head down. They're stubborn people and they just keep on, keep on, you know, performing and playing well. Yeah. You have to own your process and own your swing more so than anything. There's a lot, there's lots of things that can work and get things done, but if you don't own it then you just essentially become the mold of whoever really is controlling your swing and your golf process. Yep. Exactly. It's super easy for that to happen, especially when you're in college. You said you, hey, it sounded like you liked your coach and you liked Lipscomb. It was a good fit for you. While you were there, what did you learn as far as like, not golf swing necessarily, but more like playing tournament golf and getting ready to play at a high level? Um, I thought you were going to ask if I, what I learned at school. Not much. I learned what teachers not to take classes from. Um, Been there. But, oh yeah. Oh. I might have I might have learned four things, but anyway, um, tournament golf um, preparation stuff like that. I think the things that I learned from then. One thing I learned then in college was in college my my talent level was my talent level right was better than the guys I was playing with at in a in a in a group of five conference right or a mid-major conference, right? The the talent level wasn't there. And I stayed in that conference to where I could play against them and just know, like, okay, all I've got to do is not be stupid and I've got a chance to win, right? More so amateur golf and professional golf is where what I learned in college came to fruition more. In college, I didn't think I had to do it, but I was learning how to do it going to pro golf my coaches told me look you've got to be smarter than the other people you can't just rely on can't just rely on you know good wedge play good putting got to be able to practice smarter practice rounds smarter you know 
be be more be more aware when you're preparing for the tournament, right? And you know, they do call it the developmental tours for a reason, right? Tour Canada, Latin America, Corn Ferry, those are the developmental tours. Because you're grooming your game to then be able to go and play guys like Rory, JT, Will, Sam. You're 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 getting ready for those guys. And they're prepared. You're not. Go to the developmental tour, get ready for what's coming. And in college, they kind of they kind of took me down that path of dude, you've got to prep better. You just have to. And I didn't need it at the time, so it kind of set me back a second in uh, after college. But I think they were kind of telling the truth at the time. So speaking of the developmental tours, you played one season on Canada. I believe you finished two. Yeah, so I played. Okay. I played my 2018 year, like the year right after college, and finished like I don't know 40th, 30th, or something like that on the on the money list. So, but yeah, I did play. I played two. What did you learn um, preparation-wise on that developmental tour? Like, Walk us through what you focus on during a practice round and maybe what you focused on when you would consider yourself worse at practice rounds. So for me, right, like I told you all in high school, right, I was a lot more, I was a lot more free. You know, I just saw something and felt it. You know, there was no, there was no real technical in-depth analysis right and for me when i play well i see a golf course from a creative standpoint right how do you what's the what's the best way to shoot 66 65 whatever it is when i'm not playing my best i don't care about how i'm what i shoot when i'm not playing my best all i care about is how i'm hitting the ball and that is a horrible road to go down because who cares if you shot 70 or 69? Who cares? If you come in 30th place, they don't care how many great drives you hit. They don't care how many good iron shots you threw two yards with a seven iron, right? They don't care. All they care about is, oh, you shot 71. Well, I shot 66. I'm beating you by five, right? That's all that matters. And when I'm playing my best, that's what I focus on on the course, as opposed to how do I hit good shots. and in those developmental tours, I had a few too many rounds where I was more focused on how I was hitting it and how I was swinging it rather than how to perform the next four days. That was kind of that as well as travel, things like that. You know, that's a whole different conversation, but that road of how to perform as opposed to how to swing it. That was the thing that I learned the most up there. So you get to, Canada, you play out there, and then 2019, you get to the final stage of Q School by yeah. finishing eighth on the Canadian money list. Um, what was in that first year? We kind of glossed over that first year. You missed uh, at Corn Ferry Q School, so that's how you ended up in yeah. Canada. What was it like? You know, getting that year out there, development wise, then getting to final stage at Corn Ferry. Did you feel prepared? Yes, very. Um... But it wasn't as much I felt prepared because of Canada preparing me. It was more so I felt prepared because I had three months after Canadian tour or McKinsey tour. I had three months from the last tournament to get ready for this one event, right? I mean, how in the world are you not prepared for one event, right? You might get nervous. You might underperform because of nerves and because, you know, the golf course your game and stuff but like you've got one event right you go prepare for that as hard as you possibly can and that was the confidence because i didn't have to worry about going to first or second stage right i've never been to second stage i've heard it's like the hardest tournament in golf um but playing going to orange county that year knowing what i needed to do i basically got myself the best caddy i could for the for the tournament I practiced on whatever tough grass I could just made sure I was, you know, the driver was the premium at that golf course. You got to hit it long, stay in the fairway, even though the fairways are a little bigger, like doing those things. I knew what I had to do. I prepped for it as much as I could. 
And that was what gave me the confidence going into the tournament to be like, okay, all these guys are stressing out. I feel like I'm ready to go. That's a good feeling to have. And go out there and you feel prepared. And you said the one thing that like people can do is you can prepare, but, and the reason you play well, but it might be things go wrong or you feel nerves. Did you feel nerves out there or what was it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the, yes, but. One thing that I've always told my, my wife, my parents, I never really, like, I feel nervous on the first tee shot a few times, you know, stuff like that. But I'm never really, like, I'm never nervous about the situation. I'm more so nervous about the shot, right? You know what I'm saying? So, like, I'd have a certain par four that's really tough, water all the way down the left. I'm not nervous about if I make double, I move back 30 spots. I'm more like, oh, crap, this is a really tough tee shot. Right. That that's the nerve part. Um, but you know, this is also final stage of Q school, right? You, and this was something that a few things, one, I kind of put it more in the perspective of, okay, I made it to final stage. I need two good tournaments in the next six months Two. that's all I need. I need two good tournaments in order to get my corn fairy card and keep it. It's either final stage and play good in one of the first eight or it's play bad and then play good in two Monday qualifiers, stuff like that. Whatever it is, I need two, maybe a Monday, maybe a sponsor exemption, stuff like that. I need two. And going down that path gave me a lot of freedom. You know, mindset is everything, right? And going down the path of, okay, all I need to do is just play good for two tournaments. You don't have to worry about playing good in all 20 play good in a few and yeah all the other guys were nervous as can be and i felt like i was out there kind of playing free that's awesome specifically one thing i had a question about when it comes to nerves and being out there and having those nerves that you kind of uh had mentioned were possible you said in the interview that the most nervous you'd ever been was the 2018 australian open i think oh yeah playing with (laughs) Uh, oh yeah it's not it's it's not even close tell us about that the the 2018 australian open okay um i had just missed the first stage q school i don't have any status i only have canadian status and i um i go to australia my agent got me in two tournaments there it was the new south wales open and the australian open i had played in the new south wales open missed the cut by a mile right whatever get some practice and down there hang out i go play well in the australian open which is at a place called the lakes it was not at the australian that year um it was the year that abraham answer won and the final round i think i was in like 13 14 something like that playing pretty thinking good golf for someone that doesn't have any status anywhere right and i um i get the final round tee times and i'm playing with nicholas colstarts and Cameron Davis. Nicholas Colstarts was a Ryder Cup for two years before. Cameron Davis was the defending champion and Australian. And then you have me. No one cares who I am. No one. There were about, I want to say there were about three to 500, about 300 people at any given time on any random hole, hole six, whatever. But on the first tee, there's this, water all the way down the left i mean the 420 yard hole maybe 430 something like that water all the way down the left and i had forgotten what my tea time was i thought i was 10 minutes later my caddy comes up to me and says hey we're going off in five minutes like oh shoot i'm hitting horrible in the range go up to the first tee had all my buddies text me beforehand being like i just took live odds on you beating these two guys today i'm like i'm in a i'm I'm in a real pickle now right and uh by the way my odds were like plus 450 or something to win that day they were horrible and uh <laughs> great odds right the uh i step up on the first tee they're like oh yeah hey this guy this guy dawson armstrong i step up this thing goes 50 yards into the middle of the pond i mean this thing doesn't sniff it doesn't sniff touching grass and i look over at my caddy and go <laughs> i sure hope we get off this tee box like that was the only thing I could think about. 
And I think I proceeded to make either a triple or a quad on that first hole. And basically the rest of the day was just, what do I have to lose now, right? The most nervous I'd ever been. There's no way it can get worse than that. Okay, let's keep on playing. So it was pretty fun after that. How'd you end up finishing up that round? Oh, I think I shot like 76, 77, something like that. I, uh, I mean, that place was really windy too. I think, I think Cam Davis only beat me by like one that day. So he ended up winning the uh, live odds. So, what'd you learn from those ner- having those nerves there? On, honestly, of all things, I learned that I need to play for a lot more money at home. <laughs> honestly, that I came home and I told my, uh, well, at the time, fiance, I told her uh, and all my friends that were playing golf too. I was like, look, we've got to play for a lot more money, like a lot more money. And that was the only thing I took away. Literally, this two week stretch in, our, in Australia, that was the only thing I could think about was I wasn't ready because I was so nervous because I cared about who I was playing with and what we were playing for than about going out there and playing good golf. We've got to play for more money. Like, I don't know how it's going to work. We just got to do it. And, you know, no normal person will just be like, okay, yeah, let's play for a lot more money then, right? But once, once I told them that, a few, at least a few people were like, oh, yeah, I kind of understand what you're saying. The, uh, the idea of if you're, not, if you're not comfortable playing for a lot of money at this moment, you won't be comfortable the next time. That was the only thing I took away from it. So were you, were you able to kind of put yourself in that um, mental situation at home after that? I've put myself in that situation. You know, it's really hard to recreate, right? The, because golf is one of the only sports where you can, you can mentally, like, because you have such a long time between shots, right? You have a 50-second process, and only a second and a half of it is actually hitting a ball. And, you know, like in basketball or football, you can do these simulated plays because you don't have any time to think about it. There's no, there's no build-up in your head. Like, in golf, it's, it's basically all build-up. Like, if you just stepped up and hit the ball, I bet you'd do a lot better, right, than actually stepping up, thinking about the shot, thinking about what the right process is. If you just stepped up and hit it, you just treat it like any regular range shot. But the, it, it isn't easy to recreate. It only happens every so often. But you do learn from it. You know, things like, okay, anytime water's off the left, you know, you just don't try to aim left and fade it. Aim right, draw it around. Instead of all, you know, little things that you catch on here and there. I wish I'd learned it a lot earlier, but here we are. So you get out there and you get through final stage, jumping back to that moment get through final yeah. stage and you know that hey like i got some status here i'm kind of it's kind of like when you said you committed to liscom you kind of have a weight off your shoulders when you got some status yeah. it seems like it's a lot easier for guys to not necessarily play better but at least they you no longer have to worry about putting together a schedule like finding things you know what you're going to do now you just got to go out there and prepare and do it what was it like your first year out there getting that having that status and like being able to play in a consistent schedule? Um, great question. My first year having status was during COVID. So there was no such thing as a schedule, right? The, uh, this past year was the first time having a schedule, like a legit, I know what tournaments I'm playing in. I know what tournaments fit me. And I still didn't do good at it. I didn't do good planning at all because I'm just, I'm a spaz and I don't know what I really want. Um, that's actually something I'm learning a lot more is I've got to stick to that schedule, right? Like at the beginning of the year, my wife and I have already talked about what tournaments we think is best for me to play in and which ones to skip. Like last year, actually, I, I thought I was ready for a tournament, didn't like the course, wanted to play it anyway, went and played, missed the cut by a million, and it took me out for the next week. Things like that that I learned. And one thing that I wish I would have done, especially back in 2020 at the beginning or during COVID, all that was not just go drifting with the wind. I've got to be very sturdy, very steady and firm on my, on my decision-making of, okay, I don't care what people say. I've got to stick to what I know. This is the tournament I like. This is the one I don't like. Prep for this as much as I can. Forget about what people say. Oh, you're playing good. You need to play as many tournaments as you can. 
or it really seems like you're playing bad, you might need to take a tournament's off to really focus on your game. No. Stick to the plan you made. Find a way to perform as the year goes on. How do you determine what tournaments are a fit for you and whatnot? Because as, ju- as junior golfers and like college, you don't really have that much of a choice except for your summer no. schedule. Junior golfers, really, a lot of it's just you play in whatever's there and you don't really have a thought about, oh, this course really is not a good course to play at for me. How do you decide that yeah. now that you're out there? So history, right? History says a lot, right? Um, turns out if you don't make a cut, three straight years somewhere you probably shouldn't go there again um you kind of you know i've played golf now for 20 years wow that's a lot um i've played golf now for 20 years i think i have a general idea of what parts of my game that suit what right um one thing i feel like i'm really good at is just finding a way to get the ball around right if i can if i have a little it's getting better i feel like my driving's gotten a lot better over the last few months especially where i feel more comfortable going to really tight golf courses but history does say more than how you're feeling um for me i need a place that has a little bit more width off the tee and then around the greens has a lot of rough because around the greens you know i'm able to really i'm able to be creative with my hands have soft hands and kind of pitch it up in the air as high as possible that's kind of what i've needed kind of hard to find those two but once it happens it's really fun um but if it's a course where it's like really tight and then a bunch of falls around the green i'm that's not that's not my kind of place it just isn't and um i've kind of learned that so me taking that into account for the next few times that i go and decide what terms to play in probably having a course that take like that requires a lot of drivers probably not going to go to as much I need a course that requires a lot more placement, a lot more ability to make birdie from the from the wedge shots and iron shots in. So using that and planning accordingly is important. In that go- or in that corn ferry review you did, um, you talked about how you took last off season, you gained some weight, yeah, and you um, also gained some distance with that. Um, a, what made you want to go down that path, and B. What is your plan for this year's off season? So to answer that second part first, the the direction of this year's off season has been do what I've been doing and do it a little bit better, right? I mean, I think I need to work on short game a little bit more than I have. I think I need a little bit more sense of direction when it comes to maybe finding a coach for it or something like that. But I've been seeing a um seeing a different guy down at the island my agent my strength coach are both there so we um so i've been going to the teacher over there and the thing that we've been talking to each other about a lot is keep on doing what you're doing work on it hard have the confidence that what you're doing is the right thing and it really it really is showing right like this offseason has been one of the best for me to relax but it's also been good when it comes to results to play really good golf i feel you know but I've worked out a lot. My main priority has been a lot of working out, trying to get back that 8, 10, 12 pounds lost during the season, try to get that back up to where it doesn't just dip way below that kind of uh, baseline throughout the season next year. Um, but yeah, for, for right now, keep on doing what I'm doing and get mentally prepared for basically the first four weeks of the, uh, of the Corn Ferry season. But now to go back to two years ago, when I decided I needed to gain a lot of weight was I got done with the 2019 or 2020 season. We had the beginning, the middle of October, all the way to the middle of February. So we had four months, three and a half months. And I realized in my head, okay, distance matters more than accuracy right now. It just does. It, it, it did at the time. Turns out I might have been a little off on that, but the the idea in my mind was okay. I weigh one sixty eight. I'm not that strong. I feel like I've got pretty good hands. I've got to get longer, give myself more body stability, because in order for me to say hit an eight iron one seventy, 
a year ago, back in 2020, a year ago, it took 100% effort. If I can gain 15, 20 pounds, it'll only take 85% effort. It's going to be easier on my body as the year goes on. That was the main thought. I gained 18, 20 pounds in about a month and a half and felt pretty good, right? Not incredible, but pretty good. Got COVID, lost a lot of it, and went to a few tournaments. And the only thing I was hearing and feeling was, you're getting longer, you're, you're swinging it good, you know, your body looks tighter, stuff, you know, stuff like that. And working out as much as I did, I probably wouldn't recommend it again, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because it helped me learn so much during that time. Having the right workout routine is important. We've talked with, I don't know if you know, Mike Carroll of Fit for Golf. Um, we hit, we've had I've, him I've on. heard of the name, yeah. Okay, yeah. We've had him on. He works with some tour players. Um, Jameis Powers, I think he works with him, um, mm-hmm. as well as a couple others. And one of the things that he'd mentioned about working out that uh, I think is kind of important, I think you kind of hinted it right there. When you're on the road, it is a hard thing to do to work out and like do it right. One, because, you know, facilities are changing, but two, because your body's getting worn down. And what he'd said yeah. he found is, was most important for uh, the tour players is one, one they got, they got to just work out consistently. Like they, ha- they have to work yeah. out all the time. That's the most important thing. Not because like, not because they need it on the week they're there necessarily, but because if they don't do it, then if they take a week off, their body's going to get that stimulus oh, yeah. too much and it's going to impede them. And two is when you're working out just in general, setting up those workout routines, it's important to make sure that you're not adding too much stress. Like you want to, you want to feel good. And there's a, it's a tough balance, but you don't want to like walk out of every workout, especially, you know, those days when you do lower body days and you're like crawling out of the gym, you don't want to necessarily do that when you're playing professional golf. It's hard to do and it will impede you. How did you find the right workout routine uh, while playing and, and in the offseason? Now, keep in mind, right, tour coach, corn trade player, right? If you compare resume to resume, you're going to listen to the tour guy, right? You're just going to. That's just the way it is. But the thing that I've found for me is I've played really, really good golf historically when, one, I've had a lot of time to prepare for that one tournament. Or set of tournaments, and two, when my when my primary focus or or one A one B focus right has been lifting weights, not just stretching and mobility. It's been actually lifting the weights, and it's just it's helped me in the past. I I think it's because my wife and I have talked about this. We we think it's because as the year goes on. Your body starts wearing down a little bit. You have to give a little bit more effort throughout the season to hit it just as far as you were. And if you're not hitting it as far, think about this. You start the season, you're hitting your 8-iron 172. You're swinging smooth, 172, solid spin rate, good height. Three months later, you've lost six pounds. You hit an 8-iron, you hit it 166. Okay, now in order to hit it 172, you've got to get a harder effort. Your swing starts getting out of sync, right? Your structure starts getting off a little bit. Having the strength being the priority will help you understand, okay, my body's now at a base. It, it's never going to leave this flat line. Now I have a baseline to go off of for my swing. Now I have a baseline to go off of for what my launching, my spin, where it's landing, how far it is, you know, how hard I can go. Doing that stuff for me has been really important. And there are times like during the season, I'll do a lot more like stretching, mobility, stuff like that. But there has to be, there has to be lifting in there as well. There just has to be for me. Mm-hmm. No, and that's, de- yeah. that's dead on with what Mike said is that you've got, you can't not lift. Um, if you start not lifting, it's going to, it's going to hurt you. So that's, it's that's a fast spiral for sure. Yeah. yeah. So with all that said, like, You've had you've been out on Corn Ferry. You have this upcoming year uh, that you got to prepare for. We've talked about what your plans are for the off season this year. When it comes to, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about this. It sounds it sounds like you're externally focused and you like to have goals. When it comes to your goals for this year, what would they be? 
for 2023? Yes. Um, so I haven't really, I haven't really, set, I haven't written out any yet. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, basically ever since September, when we got done, it's been take time off, play a few pro-ams, hang out, basically watch a lot, bunch of college football, and go play in a few more tournaments, right? Maybe a few, like, like next week I'm going to Pebble Beach for this tailor-made Pebble Beach Invitational thing. And that's the first four day event I'll have played in in over almost over three months. And so I haven't really had the time to really reflect on what my goal should be next year. Um, I'll kind of fly on the seat of my pants here for it. Um, a few goals. Do you want, do you want more, do you want more, um, results oriented or more process oriented goals? Whatever goes through your head. That's, that's what we're interested in. So for me, I would say things like, well, the number one goal, right? The number one goal, this is the, the number one goal is if you stamp something on your wall, it's be on the PGA tour. That's the one thing you got to stamp on your wall. Um, how do you get there, right? Either you win a few times or you have a really consistent year. That's just, that's just the way it is, right? You can't get there by finishing 45th every week. Can't. You have a few good tournaments. Okay. My goals will probably be, you know, if I'm writing them down right now, this will be my verbal list. Get on the PGA Tour first. Win, win three times. That's the fastest way to get there. Um, throughout the season, I feel like 25 events. You play your best golf, you should have a chance to compete in 10, maybe 8. Compete, like really compete. Um, be in the final group twice, maybe three times, right? I don't really want to have a cut made goal anymore. I feel like that just that's, that just takes, you know, that adds that cut, having a cut made thing implies that you might miss a cut, right? Having that in the back of your mind of, oh, shit, I might miss this one. Now I've only got a few more left that I can miss. That starts shifting your mind to the negative side. Winning times in the final group or last two groups. I don't know what scoring average will look like next year, but probably be in the top 20 in scoring average. And something along the lines of, I want to say eight top tens would be a pretty good goal to have. Um, And then you look at more process-oriented goals where, you know, I work out three times a week at least. Um, You know, I, I, I have actually had this goal now. Have two weeks where I stay in a hotel by myself, right, to where I can have time to reflect, just let everything else kind of melt away. And just focus on the golf that week. Um, do it, figure out three or four drills or swing thoughts for the entire year. That's it. Don't have any more than that. Last year I had about twenty-five or thirty. Honestly, it was way too many. Obviously, way too many. But have a few things that you focus on because you know your game's there. Um, I'm sure. Sure, there are a few that I'm forgetting right now when it comes to process oriented or even results oriented but that would be that would be the extent of my goal setting right now that makes sense those are all spot on things and good things to have we appreciate you sharing those and we appreciate you joining us today the last question we ask every guest is if you go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing what would that one thing be Man, just one thing. That's all you smack got. Him over, smack him over the head first. You idiot. No. Um, hmm. One thing. It's a good question. Um, I would say golf gets infinitely more complicated the older you get. Keep it simple. That'd be it. Love it. If you can keep it simple, it's such an easier game. I, be- I believe it. it. I believe yeah. it. Well, that's brilliant. We appreciate you taking the time. Where can people find you on social media or somewhere else if they yeah. want to reach out to you? 
yeah, so I um I haven't had social media for a while, but I do still have my account. Um I've got I think it's the Armstrong 10 on Instagram. I don't have TikTok. Um got Facebook, I believe it's Dawson Armstrong. Might might be Dawson A Armstrong, but um Twitter at Dawson Golf, I think. I haven't had Twitter in a while, but probably the best way to reach out is just to, you know, Instagram. I'll get back on it soon and you know, wants to reach out to me, have a few more questions. I'd love to, I'd love to talk to him, help him out. Thanks for joining us today. Please do us a big favor and like and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so we can help others learn how to play better tournament golf. You can find us online at thetournamentcode.com, on Instagram at thetournamentcode, and on Twitter at tournamentcode. As always, Feel free to reach out to us at those places or email us at daniel at the tournamentcode.com and cooper at the tournamentcode.com. We hope you join us as we continue to dive deeper in what it takes to play elite tournament golf.